Well, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We've got a really special treat for you guys today. A lot of you guys already know our guest for today, and uh, I really feel bad calling him a guest, but we've got Ben Williams with us today. So as you guys know, if you've read the blog uh, at So We Speak, we started this website with three people, uh, with me, my dad, who's been on the podcast several times, and with Ben. And as fate would have it, uh, we live 90 miles apart, but we had to travel almost 300 miles to hang out together here in Kansas City. So, Ben, welcome to the podcast, and I'm glad we can make this happen up here in Kansas City together. Uh, tell us, what, what are you doing? What are you? Why are you up here? I am up here at uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and working on my PhD, which will be in apologetics. And uh, took my first seminar this week, that mandatory colloquium where you you know, read uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and other stimulating theological <laughs> yeah. texts such as that. Absolutely. Um, Strunk and White's uh, Elements of Style and other grammar books. Uh, yeah. that, that one actually is pretty good. My favorite is when you, when they have you read How to Read a Book. I did read How to After Read a Book. You, I mean, which is a great book, and I did learn a lot yeah. from that. But it's like if you're once you're working on your Ph.D., the, the thought occurs to you that you don't know how to read that's a bad day. My my review, we had to write reviews of everything we read, and my review of uh, Old Mortimer Adler did not score well. I uh, <laughs> was not, uh, he, he has a great point. I, I, I feel he's sometimes a bit unrealistic. He wants you to, uh-huh. to marinate in everything you read, and in reality, uh, actual ministers get to get the cliff notes and move on and... You're lucky if you can read half of what you feel like you ought to encounter. That is but, so you know, true. Uh, he, he has some good stuff in there for sure. Well, and you're one of those rare breeds that's doing full-time pastoring, full-time uh, education at the same time. And I know, you know we met in our master's program, our MDiv at OC, both uh, in ministry, both doing education. You were ahead of me at that point. Um now, what's it like on this end, doing the seminar format, being in ministry? Tell us a little bit about your church. So, okay, so I'm a minister, pulpit minister for the Glenpool Church of Christ down south of Tulsa, a uh, church of a little over 200. So, you know, you're, you're big enough to be active, but small enough you don't have, you know, just a robust support staff. I've got, got a great secretary, I have a youth minister and, you know, some other things. But uh, you also, you can easily fall into the trap of being a one-man band if you're not careful, if you don't uh, learn to delegate well. So that's that's one thing going on. And then, you know, I, family I like, man. I always like to talk about the size of churches based on whose job it is to get the bird out of the fellowship hall. That um, is that, that's that, legit. That's you, really the dividing line. Yeah. If it's you, small church. Yeah. If you delegate that to someone else... You've, you're kind of a medium-sized church at that Well, point. and we crossed that threshold because <laughs> about two years ago, we, we literally had Bird in the Sanctuary episode, uh-huh. and I'm in there, like, throwing blankets at it, like, you know, some kind of great white hunter. And then this time around, it was, hey, deacons, there's a bird. I'm not doing it this time. <laughs> That's right. I was like, hey, I, I've entered the new world of church life. I'm no longer the, the guy who chases down the bird. If you look so. it up in the New Testament, there's a deacon of aviary is, is I think so. a legit role for yeah, sure. Something, but, uh, something like that. It does present some unique challenges. So when you're obviously, you're at kind of a hybrid level, obviously bigger than a lot of churches in America, bigger than that stat that we always quote, the median church size in yeah. America. I don't even know if that's <laughs> yeah. even true anymore, but, either, but there is a little bit of a hybrid uh, role that you have there when you do have a couple of staff members you're yeah. obviously managing a big board of deacons and and obviously you have elders at your church as well mm-hmm. so the moving pieces really do start to get pretty complicated uh, yeah and, and and because we're in that we're blessed to be in a growth phase which is great 
but the strings attached to that of, of kind of navigating, um, th there's never a plateau where you say, great, we've got it all figured out. It's, it's every day is something new. Uh, do we want to start a new program? Do we want to kill a program and who's going to run it? And is the same person running it this year that ran it last year? Because mm -hmm. uh, that, that is a constant move and that's, that can be time consuming. And when you're when you're not on your game on that, that's when you you know send out an email that makes somebody mad and you regret it. I mean, that's the kind of thing you do, right? Uh, when you're like, oh, what was I thinking? We've you know, been there. We've all been there. We've all been there. So yes, that's what happens. But you know, again, the moving parts. I, I enjoy it. I really love it. And the church there is fantastic and great support group of elders and deacons, their wives, everybody involved is really fantastic. It just working it all out. So you got that going on, and then. Uh, I'm a family man, have a wife of 15 years who's a dental assistant, and two boys who uh, rule the world, and <laughs> one's nine and one's three, and they are they are something else. So try to balance that, and, and then the school thing. So there's, there is a lot going on, but I'm one of those stupid people who just never say no, <laughs> yeah. and I can't help myself. Cole, you'll like this story. Um, I've been down as an adjunct teacher for OSU OKC since 2008. All right. Hey, that's that's all right. kind of how I keep my, my chops going on physics. I didn't want to forget it. Yeah. And so I teach astronomy one semester and meteorology online another semester. And it's right. just something I do. And um, it lets me make OSU jokes once in a while because I'm a senior, you know. So that's exactly that. right. Say, so it's it's nice to see a OU guy like you kind of. Coming over Slumming to the, it, really. to the light. Yeah, coming over well, to the good side. But the joke I usually make is they hired me. Um, they didn't have anybody to teach this class. I, w I had a bachelor's in physics. And they hired me to teach a college class. And the joke <laughs> I always made was that a bachelor's degree at OU counts as a doctorate at OSU. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Oh, man. But anyway, I do that. And then uh, this last year, they said, hey, we were kind of wanting somebody to develop an online physics class for the first time. And... Of course, I would say yes to that. At the same time, I'm going back for my doctorate, you know, is to write a new curriculum for them. But uh, yeah, I'm doing that too. You pick the most opportune time. Yeah, and, always. You know, once. but I, th I think there's something really interesting about that. And when you look at pastors, just in general, so obviously the first thing you think about is, you know, almost what I'd call like capital P pastors. You got like yeah. Rochelle and Andy Stanley and Rick Warren. And the way that you conceive of what their job is, primarily as a communicator, primarily as yeah. a leader of a gigantic enterprise, is so different yeah. than what it looks like to really be in the grind in a small to medium-sized church context, which yeah. the vast majority of pastors are doing. And I would say it opens you up for certain things that are really enjoyable. I mean, the fact that you can teach a college class is a great thing. Yeah. And at the same time, the fact that you found yourself teaching a college class <laughs> in addition to your pastoral duties is not a great thing. You know, right. It's a hard yeah, thing. That was a silly so, thing, but yeah. Uh, um, the, the world, in terms of, you're picking up books on how to be a minister and what church growth looks like. The ones written by those guys that only have kind of one experience in ministry, I just don't find useful because... Mm -hmm. Uh, they they don't know how to if you're if your model of church growth is a personality cult around you and that's the only way you've ever experienced it and someone else keeps the the trains moving that just can't be transplanted into the small medium sized church it's a different feel yeah so. and I think there's something important to say about that too when when you're talking about it from the standpoint of being a pastor 
and you're in the cult of personality matrix yeah. where you know the most successful guys at least by a certain criteria yeah. are the ones that have mega churches and everybody knows their name they're writing books and stuff it's funny to think about that in the context of your own vocation your own pastoral calling uh, because you get to the point where you're like I, I don't know you know the jury's still out to me on how you go about doing church like that in a way that is biblical and engenders yeah. humility. And, then I, and those are struggles that those guys have that I can't really even imagine. Yeah. And I think a lot of them navigate it really well. The question for me, though, is not whether or not I think that that's a good biblical model, a bad biblical model. Yeah. We could talk about that for all day if we wanted to. Right. The question I often think about for that is, what if, you, what if you're not good enough to be that person. Which I assume is most of us. It it is. I just know that about myself. (laughs) I'm never going to be the guy that has thousands and thousands of people coming to listen to me preach. And obviously the spirit can do whatever he wants to do. But when you step back from that and say, okay, that cannot be the goal for pastoral ministry. And me have a healthy vocation in the place that I am. I had that experience this week. So at Midwestern, you get to go into their Spurgeon library and there's wow. all the collection. You got the paintings and the busts of Spurgeon everywhere. And you get to stand behind his preaching rail. And I sent my wife a picture of it and I, and she sent, cause she's, you know, one of those fantastic supportive people says, one of these days, Ben, your pulpit in a library. <laughs> and I said, more likely in a dumpster, but I like what you're thinking. Yeah, you know? I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, I'm not, there's not going to be that Williams Library. And at, I think at one point in my life, I thought that was the goal. Mm-hmm. That, like, if I needed to go through, I remember having this uh, conversation with mutual friend Chris Rosser. Yes. Uh, and saying, you know, if I don't go to a top notch school and get my doctorate and become the brightest mind in the field, then I've failed. And it was Rosser who actually pointed me back to the kingdom's made up of a lot of guys in ministry at churches that just need that guy at that place. Yeah. And yeah, once in a while there's a Spurgeon who thousands of people come to hear or, you know, in my traditions in churches of Christ, you you get an Alexander Campbell once in a while and Mm -hmm. everyone says, wow, that was great. But there's a whole lot of not Campbells and not Spurgeons in the world. Right. And and while I would say Spurgeon, he didn't pursue that. He didn't ask for that. And I think there's a lot of guys that today have megachurches that did not want to have megachurches. It never even crossed their mind. And now they're trying to do their best with this kind of growth. And and obviously, I respect those guys. And and that's where I want to – I always want to be – mindful of the fact that sometimes we criticize megachurches as somebody who is basically out to conquer the entire world yeah. and get every single person and run. That's true. You know, they're the, yeah. they're the Walmart of churches. They're trying to run <laughs> all the little mom and pops out of business. Yeah. I don't think that's the way that most megachurches are. I think, I think a lot of them are trying to do the best with the growth that they've had. They didn't yeah. know about but Certainly if you look at somebody like Spurgeon, so he's doing his best. He's, preaching the word of God. He's trying to listen to the Holy Spirit and the thing explodes. And when you think about pastoral calling, that's the piece of the overlap that I want to share with Spurgeon, with any pastor of any kind, but it makes you step back for a moment. And and this can be a gut check because it's, it's humbling and say, what is the pastoral calling? 
And I know we've, we we had some other things we want to talk about, but I want to camp out here for a second and say... This is great. Okay, what, so you're going to like this. What is pastoral calling, especially as it pertains to local church ministry, you never get noticed outside of the community that you're in. You're right. You, you never get to donate yeah. your library anywhere. You never get to speak at uh, T4G. Like, none of that yeah. ever happens to you. <laughs> that... We have to come up with some kind of pastoral calling, some kind of definition of calling that yeah. doesn't entail those things. But we, on the on the flip side of that, the way that small churches are often criticized is they don't have a regard for excellence. Right. As if excellence is this, you know, biblical value that everybody realizes exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I want to camp out in the middle of those there for a second and say we should be trying our hardest yeah. We should have expectations for growth. Yeah. But what should we be trying our hardest to do? What does growth look like? How do we preserve kind of a pastoral calling in between those two extremes? You're about to have your first uh, multi-day podcast episode. You're <laughs> in my wheelhouse of things I'm interested in. So at uh, the first day of this colloquium I was in... Um, Thor Madsen, who, by the way, is the greatest name of a professor you can ever have. Thor Madsen. Just unbelievable. Fantastic. Okay, so he asked this group full of, uh, I don't know, 15 Baptist students and this guy from the Church of Christ who's hanging out. And he says, uh, how many of you feel like you're called to be here? Hmm. And, of course, 15 hands go in the air, and and one awkward guy who doesn't know what to do is sitting there and and. Dr. Madsen then kind of said, you know, if I had to guess, there would be one hand that wouldn't go up. I would have said you because uh, we had had a conversation <laughs> the night before. And he said, I mean that kindly, but tell us why you didn't raise your hand. And I said, it's not because I don't have a sense of this is an important vocation and it's a godly vocation. But I think in my tradition, we, we are taught uh, to be more suspicious of certainty and delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. that can come with that. So... Before I ended up at Midwestern, I got accepted to Aberdeen and was going to be, you know, the, ne- the next great big thing in my mind. That's what yes, I was going to be. You know, I was looking up yeah. who the, the graduates from Aberdeen were, and I was like, put my yeah. name on that list. You know, oh, right? yeah. And if you'd have asked me at that moment, you know, were you called to do that? It would have been easy to say, yeah, obviously, that's that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be, you know, the, the C.S. Lewis of the Church of Christ or whatever I'm going to be. Right. And, and instead, it didn't work out at all. There's a financial thing and another practical thing and another practical thing. And then, of course, it's like two weeks, it just balloon lets it all the ear. Right. Uh, so my comment to him in the class, which got a lot of you know sympathetic nods uh, as they thought about it, was uh, if I'm going to say I'm absolutely certain that's what I was supposed to be doing, how do I come back, you know, two years later when I've thought it all through and end up here, yeah. you know, um, I don't want to be disappointed by being here. I think this is a great place to be. Sure. Uh, but I also kind of felt like I was supposed to be over there. So yeah. that, that, that notion of calling is so dangerous because of the delusion of grandeur. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't think Christians are careful, and ministers maybe are the worst, about being suspicious that their calling sounds a lot like their own voice. Mm-hmm. That we get called to better paying ministries. Yes. You know, that's convenient that God has called me to do exactly the thing I intended to do anyway. Right. As opposed to suffer and struggle at a smaller church that might be exactly the perfect place for the kingdom to do its work with mm-hmm. me. Um, and that, that I think, is a struggle. That, that's why, for me, names you mentioned— um, 
instead of Andy Stanley, I'm always going to be reading Eugene Peterson because his sure. view of ministry uh, connects more, even though he's you know, Lutheran, not connected to my tradition at all, but his view of you, you go to your small town, you do your work, and mm-hmm. you, you, you do it. That yeah. kind of calling with a more humble and whatever he wants me to do is what I'll do. And I might right. not be sure what that is. Yes. Yeah. I early, early in my time in ministry, one of the things I was really convicted by was you see other young guys in ministry. You're always comparing yourself. Yes. And I think that in and of itself is dangerous and something that you have to work through. But, but the other, the other thing that kind of strikes you is, huh, how is it that God's call always seems to be up and to the right? You know, whether mm-hmm. it's bigger church, bigger paycheck, yeah. more prestige. Like, why isn't God calling people? And then you do discover that he is doing this. Why isn't God yeah. calling people to smaller ministries? Or why isn't he taking pastors out into what we would consider probably like desert context. I mean, everybody's probably had that thought. If, you, if you're in ministry or if you think about ministry, you think about the fact that ministry opportunity determines your first instinct when you're evaluating a calling. Yeah. So you think to yourself, okay, well, if I go there, what's the upward mobility like? You know, is it a town big enough for the church to grow? Is it a church the position yeah. to grow? I mean, and all those questions, I'm not saying those questions are bad, no. but what happens early in ministry is you find yourself in a situation where either that's not true, you disappoint yourself, things don't work out the way that you thought, things fall through, like you're mentioning with school or, or with church or an event or, you know, I think on a, you know, just on a, on a very real level, the first time as a pastor, you ever plan anything that nobody comes to. Oh, that's and if you one. if you yeah. have never been there, uh, you you may not have crossed the threshold yet yeah. of that just disappointment in yourself. Like I remember the first time I planned a youth event, and no kids came. Yeah, and I was twenty two, so I was cool. I was really cool for high school kids, and I was like, you couldn't even get a kid here out of your coolness, much less yeah. out of like what you're actually trying to do. Gospel. Yeah, let alone the gospel. You couldn't even it's get a kid cool here enough. just out of power of personality. Yeah. But those moments make you come to grips with something inside yourself that is, okay, maybe the calling of God is not the same thing as the voice in my own head. Yeah. Maybe the calling of God, while he has given me desires, and I think God works through desire, yeah. um, maybe God's going to call me something that's against some of the things that I desire. He better. I mean, if Christianity is true, and if God has anything to say to you, it had better be some things you don't want. Hmm. Because regardless, whether you're, wherever you are on the grand Calvin, Arminian spectrum of all things, Christians don't believe humans really come out really good, right? I mean, that right. we're pretty messed up people. Yes. And so if, if somewhere on the line, God doesn't say something, here's what you should do, and I know you don't want to, then you're just not getting it because yeah. that, that wasn't you talking. When Scripture says, believe not every spirit, that might include the voice in your own head telling you what you want because yes. uh, it sounds a lot like God if you're not careful. Absolutely. I, w- I want to go back to Eugene Peterson for a minute because when you I— You can spend all the time in Eugene you want. I <laughs> love Eugene Peterson. I think when I—so when I first started to realize maybe two years into ministry and— which is just a fraction of time, you know, in ministry. And I'm thankful yeah. for some mentors who 
set me off on this even before I got into ministry. They had me read The Contemplative Pastor when I was an intern. Oh, great. Um, before, two years before I even got a job at a church, I was thinking about this. And so I think early on in ministry, you hit those points of disillusionment. You realize, you know what, um, I'm not going to be a superstar celebrity pastor. Mm-hmm. Or if I am, I'm going to have to do something between now and then. That I'm actually <laughs> in right now. And you have that moment of reckoning and you begin to look somewhere for your pastoral identity. And for me, and I know for you and for, for a lot of people that I know, that place was Eugene Peterson. Yeah. I started wondering, okay, what does it mean to be a pastor? And here he comes with this book, Contemplative Pastor. Or I love working the angles or under, under the, unpredictable the unpredictable plant, plant and five smooth stones. Oh, wow, those are so good. So good. And his style obviously is so rich. And yeah. I just remember reading in the, the first time I encountered him that being busy as a pastor is not necessarily it's a spiritual sickness. That yeah. was his word. It's Busyness for a minister is a spiritual sickness. And I'll never forget that analogy he uses where he says, you know, so imagine you go to a doctor's office and there's nobody there. And you go in, there's nobody in the waiting room, and you can see inside the doctor's office and he's just sitting there reading a book. Yeah. You probably wouldn't want to go to that doctor. You'd want to go to the one who's rushing around and who's you know appointment after appointment after appointment all day yeah. long booked up to the brim. And he's like, but which one do you think would actually be the better doctor? Yeah. How, and how do you know? Yeah. And so he starts to talk about the difference between busyness and fruitfulness, mm-hmm. and the fact that you know pastoring is a calling. It's also a craft. It's also something that you grow in. It's something that you learn. And by breaking things down, you know, into, so in in the contemplative pastor, I think it's, um, you know, he's talking about the ways that you do pastor. So you are subversive as a pastor. And in in working the angles, he breaks it down into responsibility. So you have prayer, you have the word, and then you have soul-curing language. And he begins to impose this system, this matrix on your new identity. And for me, it was a matter of beginning to build out my own relationship with God in light of my calling, in light of the people that I've been given, that I really started to understand what it actually was that God had called me to do. Mm -hmm. And I think about in the unpredictable plant, um, he has that conversation with the guy where he says, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. But I've got to run this church. He uses some colorful yeah. language in that yeah. in that passage, but you know I'm I'm too busy running the church yeah. to be a pastor. The scene where he tells the elders that uh, he he's not going to come to any more budget meetings, yeah, and then he tries to show up to one, and they say, "What are you doing here?" Yeah, and kind of throw him out. Yes. Was this breakthrough moment? I'm reading. I was reading that during a budget process at our church. And I was like, "What do I have to do to get thrown out of a budget process? You know, uh-huh. what, what do I need to do to change this? Where I'm doing the thing that I need to be doing, and, and not at the, you know, doing a church budget is a meaningful task. Someone needs to do it really well. Yeah, but that may not be the thing that my set of skills is or gifts or however term we use is best being used for the kingdom and being fruitful is doing that." Maybe I could do it. You know, you and I have done some math classes. I could probably do a budget if yeah. I had to, but that may not be the best use of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Yeah. And, uh, 
think it's important. So if we were to zero in on that, um, for somebody that maybe isn't in ministry at this point, maybe we'll never go into ministry vocationally. Yeah. And, you know, obviously feel free to speak to whoever, but maybe for somebody who's thinking, I feel called, because I come across this person a lot. So it's a person who's growing like crazy in their faith. Mm-hmm. They're in a secular vocation. And they say something to you like, my job has just gotten to the point where I don't really want to do it anymore. I don't want to do anything anymore other than evangelize, study the Bible, pray, talk to people about God. That's where I am. Am I called to ministry? Should I be pursuing ministry? What would you say to that person? Mm, that's a tough one. Um, so I do, have a, I do have a little bit of a cynic streak. You probably know that about me. And so there's, there's part of me that always says, run the other direction. Like if you, my, my own father minister, um, I remember commenting to me as a young boy that if there's literally anything else you can do in life mm-hmm. and not hate yourself, go do it. Yeah. And in his sentiment, I mean, that was, again, we don't use a lot of calling language in, in my church, but that's essentially what he was expressing is that, um, uh, if you're not compelled to do this, don't do it. Yeah. And it can't be this fleeting thing. I have in my life walked away from it a couple of times mm-hmm. and ended up thrown back at it. Mm-hmm. And that that's when I think you, you start to say, okay, this is, this is where I need to be and I'm going to stick this out. And that's, yeah. that's helpful is you do look for things to line up. Um, I, again, my, my distrust of my own voice. Uh, I don't necessarily listen to my own opinion of my skills and abilities. You want to listen to other people and what yeah. they say that you're, you're good in, gifted in. Right. Um, you, you ask your friend Cole Fakes, what should I be doing? And you talk to, you talk <laughs> to people and, and your wife, you know, says yeah. nice thing. I mean, you, um, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Baird commented, and he, he probably stole this somewhere. I'm sure he, all the good ones plagiarized, but he commented about a good preacher's wife is supposed to be uh, supportive but unimpressed. Yeah, and and my my wife does that well. Like that, you know, you want someone who's going to shoot you straight, but it's not part of the cult. Mm-hmm. And you listen to those voices, and if they're continually saying, if, if all of that is lining up, just mm-hmm. over and over again, it's lining up in the same conclusion. Then you start to say, okay, let's let's go do that. Yeah. And then you dive in with with both feet. I I don't know how to I don't know how to do anything slowly, as you may have noticed. I, I yeah. I'm a dive in the deep end kind of guy. Yeah, and you that's charge. what you have to do. Yeah. And, and fail miserably and fantastically, and then do it again. That's right. That's I mean that's a lot of what pastoral ministry is. I think about the verse in Proverbs a lot in the context of ministry. This is true in in your personal life, but it's true in your ministry as well. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Yes, um, and 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 I and I wouldn't apply that verse obviously to like drastic moral failure in, in right, ministry, right, right. But, but giving it your best effort and seeing it come to nothing mm-hmm. can be one of the most discouraging things in ministry because, in some sense, you don't just feel like you let your people down. In some sense, you don't just feel like you let yourself down because you have that sense of calling. Now you feel like you let God down. Yeah, that that's really hard to work through. But what God requires is that kind of mindset among his people. They, you fall, you rise again. Yeah. Not just twice, not just three times, not that's just right. after the fourth time when people are calling you an idiot and, and telling you maybe <laughs> to go do something else. But, you know, yeah. the righteous falls seven times, a complete yeah. number of times and rises again. And, 
you, it's important when you get into ministry, knowing that you're going to go through failure, you're going to go through hard times, you're going to see people at their worst, you're going to go through some situations you didn't even dream existed before, much less that you'd have to be the one kind of driving through this situation yeah. with people in, 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 in tow. Those are the moments where I think your calling biblically comes in the strongest. So honestly, getting into ministry on the front end, and I, w- I want to come back to that and give some give some more advice there, kind of to piggyback off of what you said. But what you see in Paul a lot of times is whether it's suffering, whether it's ministry, um, the way that he kind of runs this conception of your call is your call is not just the thing that keeps you that gets you into ministry. Your calling is the thing that keeps you in ministry yeah. on the days when you'd rather do anything but stay in ministry. Yeah. And I think this is true if you're volunteering. I think this is true if you're in vocational ministry. Certainly if you've given your life yeah. to vocational ministry, there are going to be days when you want to quit. There's going to be days when... Monday. Yeah, you, almost every week. Yeah, <laughs> you, can, uh, you know, there's days when you want to quit. There's days that you can rationalize quitting. There's days that you no longer feel God speaking to you the way that you did before. And it's in those moments where you see Paul saying, do you remember your calling? Mm -hmm. Don't you remember that when you weren't even, when it comes to salvation, this is true too. Don't you remember when you weren't even interested in God and he was interested in you and called you and brought you back to himself? Don't you think that he's going to sustain you? Don't you think that if you continue on down this path, God's going to be faithful to you? I think the same thing is true in ministry. He reminds Timothy of that. He says, Remember when we laid our hands on you? Yeah. Remember when we commissioned you? Remember when you received gifts? That that reassurance of calling, I think, is one of those things that keeps you in ministry, even after deciding to go into ministry in the first place. Yeah. But I want to go back and talk and, and, and maybe build out calling practically for a minute as well. Okay. So I I couldn't agree more with what you said about how to know if you're called. Because I I feel like there's too many people that feel like they're called to ministry because they had a great time in youth group. Yeah. So they grew up, they love their youth pastor, they love their youth group. And that's not a bad reason to get into ministry, but it's definitely not a sufficient reason. Here's a crazy idea. Go to church. You know, I mean, you had a great experience in church. That's because church is actually supposed to be great. So (laughs) maybe you should go to that. This should be the normative experience. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. but it it is so unnormative. It is so abnormal that people assume the only way to keep that is to to get in it vocationally. Right. Uh, And it's sad that we've made people feel that way. Somehow we have failed to create a continuity of experience Especially, I think youth ministry has done that, where mm-hmm. um, you leave the youth group experience and you go to college. If, if they don't immediately find a college group experience, mm-hmm. we have a huge dropout rate. You know the numbers on that. And then they get out of college and we have the same issue, even if we, we kept them there, of uh, integrating them into church life. Uh, again, unless they go into ministry, right, where they're, that, that seems to be a trend. And I think you're right, that it's it's actually, we, we need to somehow normalize the fantastic church experience for a lay person. Right. Uh, and I, we haven't done it very well. Well, and at least convincing people that, you know, having a having an experience where you are loved. And I think the thing that's a little bit heartbreaking when you're talking, you're sitting down, you're talking to a young uh, person, whether in age or spiritually, about their experience in the church and whether or not they're called to ministry. And I know you and I both, because we've talked about this, you and I both have had experiences where 
you sit down with somebody and, and essentially you're saying, I don't think you're called. Yeah. At least not right now. Yeah. At least not in this role. Yeah. And it's but we always hear we need more ministers, and, and my answer is always I don't. I think some of the guys we've got now shouldn't be ministers. I think, <laughs> you know, I, 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 yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna win you like the uh, the, the chairman role on any no. of the uh, any of the councils in the denomination. But really, we need we we do need more um, deacons, elders, people that are in ministry from the other end of the fence or whatever. However, that structure we want to mm-hmm. call that. Uh, that participate in life in that way, and I, in in the same way that America needs more votex, uh, mm-hmm. uh, churches need more deacons and elders in a bad way. Uh, yes, and and don't quit your day job while you're doing it. You know. I mean, yes, yeah, absolutely. But, so if I were gonna if I were gonna summarize when it, when it comes to calling, if I were gonna put a fine point on it, you know, and this is this is the way Spurgeon walks through this and a hundred other people. You obviously have to start with desire. Do you want to do this? Like you're saying, can you see yourself doing anything else? And not just see yourself, are you compelled in some way to do this? Um, and do you have a passion that's more than a camp high or a mountaintop yeah. experience? So do you, do you have the heart for it? Do you have the drive for it? Secondly, do you have the skills? Do you have the skills? Like, and and. A lot of different skills can be put to use in ministry. Obviously, that's a big difference between big churches and small churches. Big churches give you the opportunity to be a specialist, even in some ways that you wouldn't necessarily think you could be a specialist in ministry. Big churches need tech people, full-time tech people. Absolutely. Communications people. But if you're not at a big church, you need to be a generalist to an extent. Yeah. You need to be able to do a lot of things reasonably well. Top among those things pastor the are the, the nitty-gritty of talking to people about their faith whether that's evangelizing yeah. whether that's being at the bedside and you can obviously learn to be better in a hospital room than, than you were before but do you have that do you have the do you have an ability to preach you know are you willing to study the word are you willing to manage to the extent that you can I mean you, there's a big general set of skills and then lastly to kind of land where you did is anybody else seeing this? Yeah. Is there a church? Is there an organization? Is there a leader out there who says, I see this in you, and this is an opportunity? Is God opening up any doors? Is, yeah. is, is or there, throwing you through them. Is he, yeah, you is, through he, windows. is he putting you in a situation <laughs> that you're not ready for so that yeah. you have to rely on him to use those gifts? You those know, the Spurgeon story of his first sermon? That they take him, to, they send him out to this church with his buddy, and his buddy says, uh, or he says, I, well, I hope you're ready for the sermon. And his buddy says, you know, if you're not preaching it, there will be no sermon. And his friend runs into the room and beats him to the couch and sits down so he doesn't have to speak. And Spurgeon, with no notes, does his first sermon. That's right. You know, it just, he got, he didn't get, it wasn't an open door. He got thrown out of a window and learned how to preach before he hit the ground. And he was just, that's sometimes the way it's got to be. You know, you got to preach. You have to preach a lot of bad sermons before you get to any good <laughs> yeah. ones. Um, I'll add one more uh, universal skill across all spectrums that I know you get other things to talk about. But um, if you don't have to be a book nerd to be a, a minister, but readers are leaders. Mm-hmm. And if you say to me, I don't enjoy reading, I don't like reading we're going to have a talk that this may not be the field for you. You might be an excellent deacon and an excellent elder. You may be great with people. You may be a good counselor and a friend to people. There may be wonderful things for you. But if the thought of picking up a book uh, and reading it to completion and thinking about it terrifies you, 
I, I just don't know how you can engage the level of skill set you need to be a minister in, in, in any capacity. I, and that may, be, that may be, you know, snobbish of me, but I, I'm not saying everybody's got to be super well-read, but pick up a book and read it once in a while, I think, is the floor. That's the, the absolute bottom hurdle. So speaking of books, one of the things we do on this podcast is I shouldn't have mentioned books uh, when we when we have <laughs> when we have somebody on the podcast. So I always love to ask them uh, about their Desert Island books. So okay. um, we got this from Five Minutes in Church History. I've heard several people do it, but but our version of it is mm-hmm. you are being gifted with a vacation stay on an island. You're not marooned here, so you don't need like a shipbuilding book. You don't need like how to get off a desert island for dummies. Like you're being sent here. And uh, you're going to enjoy it. This is like an all-expenses-paid vacation on a desert island. And we've already had some people there. So you already have a Bible. It's, it's whatever translation you want. Uh, you've got a Greek, Hebrew. We've got Augustine. We've got Luther. We've got all the big ones. Have the fakes already been there? Because you guys picked out some <laughs> great books. If you left yeah. your books behind, yeah. Tolkien's there. And all that, yeah, okay, okay. yeah, because we really want to know you uniquely. Okay. You know, like what? So, give us your five oh, desert five. island books. Okay, uh, since there is, we're, we're going to go quality over quantity here. I'm going to break the trend. I know you, you, you fakes are all about. I want the complete annals of all Western literature. Well, I don't know how long we're going to be there. You know, yeah, so, you, know. Know, you guys have a separate ship arriving with your literature. That's right. Mine could fit in my suitcase. So um, we're going to read uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Mm. I make it a, a point to read that uh, every year, even though in like grand scheme of things, I don't agree with some of the theology of the book, right? Sure. That I'm not yeah. a purgatory guy, for example. Right. Well, he said uh, it doesn't have any, it's not an allegory. It doesn't have anything yeah, to do Yeah, sure it's not. Heaven or hell. Yeah, whatever. Well, I want to put you on the spot here. I love that book and, and don't get to talk about it very much, but I, there's so many parts of that book that I mm-hmm. like. Is there a vignette in there that just really resonates with you? Mm-hmm. One of those, you know, kind of just little scenes that he paints. Two in scenes. There. Two scenes. Uh, number one, the picture of hell where people voluntarily move farther and farther away from each other of that, you know, we, we tend to emphasize the fire part of it, which is a perfectly biblical image and no problem with that. But the language of outer darkness of complete human estrangement from our humanity, um, because sin has turned us into someone who doesn't want to be around humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that, to, to be around another human being would be around someone in the image of God. And I don't want God yeah. to be that far removed from God. Um, it's a, is a terrifying image. It's, it's, it's only half of it as, uh, you and I will, will notice, you know, there are passages where we do need to think of, of hell as a, as a sentence of judgment imposed. Sure. But the other half of that is the self imposition of hell. Yeah. Uh, that that image that's always staggering. haunted me. It's always haunted me. And then on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, um, when he steps on the grass of this heavenly field, mm-hmm. and the grass hurts. Yeah, that the grass in God's country is the most real thing he'd yeah. ever touched. That everything else we have is a wispy shadow in comparison to the most real 
being I in love existence. That. that one kills me, and I steal I steal that every chance I get. And that's I compel myself to read that every year. And once in, you know, once in a while, I say, "Oh, I know how it goes," and then I'll sit down and I, I read it all the way through in one sitting and have right, to read it. Yeah. It's wonderful. And uh, that that part of that scene just really gets me. Man, so, what a great book! I mean, that's such a great yeah. book. And and the 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 point that I, I would emphasize on top of that is the idea to think about biblical and Christian ideas creatively. Hmm. Uh, to that you do have a framework in Scripture, uh, but I do like N.T. Wright's expression that a lot of what we read in Scripture is kind of pointing into a fog. I mean, it's. It is unhuman. It's otherworldly and transcendent. Yeah. So by nature, uh, the language only gets you so far. Mm-hmm. And so while you never want to confuse imagination with doctrine or imagination with theology even, sure. uh, but the idea of using that as a tool to, to kind of tease out uh, ideas that help you picture something, yeah. I think that's a great gift that C.S. Lewis no, has given. there's nobody world. better than, than he was at the... Yeah. Runner-up would be um, Till We Have Faces, but... Um, I've already got one C.S. Lewis book. Yeah, so we can send you with the, with the C.S. Lewis so it's collected, yes. collected works. Yeah. Okay, number two. So that's my first. It's a tiny book. Uh, next to that on the tiny bookshelf is uh, Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Man. Everybody has a book that uh, like opened a door to the world of something to you. Life Together was that book for me. It was an early yeah. read. Um, and probably, I don't know, my second semester was a summer class at uh, yeah, MDiv. Yeah, and was reading that and was not at all interested, and just uh-huh. fell in love with all things Bonhoeffer. Was quoting Bonhoeffer to everybody <laughs> I knew, and researching Bonhoeffer and Bonhoeffer. People are sick of Bonhoeffer around me for a yeah. while. Uh, so yeah, that was an important book. Um, some of his just the simplicity of his description so insightful. Um, the power of sin in privacy and mm. his, his discussion of confession. Yeah. You know, I could talk about that for ages and that was great stuff. That's, this is why we're such good friends. We, we, I, that book played the same role in my life and it was when I was in college and mm. living in a fraternity house, that okay. book absolutely changed my life Yeah, because I thought to myself, could we do some of this? Yeah. I mean, cause you're in such a unique situation. Yeah. I mean, Number one, uh, when you read, when you read life together, you think about, you know, when in my life would I ever be in a situation like they were in? I mean, they're With they're the SS chasing you through the German woods. Yeah, they're in the German yeah. woods together, hiding out. A company of pastors, basically, <laughs> who spend all day, you know, doing seminary together. It's the beginning of a sitcom. And yeah. I was like, you know what? That's a, kind of what we're doing. I mean, in this fraternity <laughs> house. Like, now we need to convert some people. We need yeah. some Christians. You know? But uh, yeah, right, but, right. It, but it just changed my view of what Christian community can look like, mm-hmm. and the richness of liturgy and schedule and routine and you like we tend to think that praying at the same time every day with the same people with the same intent and all that will somehow deaden your spiritual life Mm -hmm. but what I've found is if you'll commit with a group of people to go through those routines and you do have to be careful that it doesn't become simply a routine but if you will be disciplined enough to do that you will you'll have a vibrance in your spiritual life that you can't find any other way. Yeah. And, I mean, I love that book. So many good pieces of that. I'm stalling. Okay, so number three. I think I can get as far as three or four between I have to, you know, start breaking the hearts of 
authors everywhere. But, uh, number three, we've already been there. Uh, it, it's going to have to be under the unpredictable plant or mm. tree plant. Yeah. Um, that the especially the discussion of stability mm. that every minister wants to go to Tarshish and probably we're supposed to be in Nineveh. Yeah. Uh, and. He has a line in there. Every church is full of sinners, and worse, they all have a sinner for a pastor. Like, yeah. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really it changes. He, he makes a reference in there to the uh, vow of stability in the Benedictine culture. And I actually put the book down at that point and went and hunted that down. And it was very mm. fascinating that they had, they had a problem of monks were hopping ship you know they, they didn't get along with this group you, know, you talk about a life together experience yeah, they didn't no get kidding. along with this group of monks and so they'd move down the road rather than becoming better people by being in this group yeah. and so the Benedictine vow included and you're going to stay here even when it stinks yeah. and that uh, Eugene Peterson then takes that and says that's what the minister is supposed to say yeah. I am the minister here and I'm going to stay here thick and thin and yes yeah. Was an important idea for me at the moment I read it, mm-hmm. so it's been very important. So these are two, three pretty small books. There, uh, I don't have a lot of pages. Yeah, I'm going to be rereading. I think a yes. lot. Yes, you, yeah. Well, you're going to be doing some uh, digesting and marinating and applying and. Uh, no skimming on the desert island. No, now you, you've already stolen all the fiction I would have probably included. I love Tolkien, and I love. Uh, I'd grab some Harry Potter. Well, I always love to. I always love to to talk to people about why they love the Lord of the Rings. So if you're, if you, let's say you're going to take Lord of the Rings. Okay. Why would you take Lord of the Rings? Uh, that's good. I love beautiful words, and uh, I love what he does. Word like reading elfish sentences that I don't even understand. Just, mm-hmm. I love beautiful sounds. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I like that about him. Um, I love conceptually the idea of hobbits, of going back to what are ministers, um, little people's in hole in the ground trying to do important things in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love his description of hobbits too. And, and you know, later in, in his life and his writings, he, he came out, I, I, I am a hobbit. At yeah. heart, he's like, yeah. hobbits are my kind of people, and yeah. I'll never... My favorite line probably in there is when he's describing hobbits in that little intro section, mm-hmm. and he says, they, more than anything, they love to have books full of things that they already know. Yeah. Like, it just, that's <laughs> Isn't just that the conversation a great, right? like, it's just such a great <laughs> oh, line of description of what the yeah. kind of the feel of the hobbits would be yeah. like. I, and I love so I, I need to be a hobbit. I want to be Gandalf. Yeah. That I do want to be in, in that time of crisis. I want to be able to be the guy who walks in the room and grows larger and says what needs to be said and and saves the day for somebody. Mm-hmm. So again, that's probably that self delusion that I, I need to be a hobbit. Yeah. But when that moment comes, I want to be Gandalf. I think about that same thing with Faramir. You okay, know, he's, yeah. he's the, he, or Sam for that matter. They yeah. play a similar role, but yeah, he, he's that second brother. He's not glamorous, mm-hmm. but in the end, he does what needs to be done. He does his duty. He's honorable. He represents his people well. Okay. And even though he never measured up to Boromir, even though he's never exactly what his dad wanted out of him, in the end, he's a hero yeah. because he was faithful. And I, I love that storyline. I love that you can see a story of good and evil where 
the overt heroes, you know, the Aragorns of, of the world are heroes mm-hmm. and he doesn't tear them down, which is something we love to do yeah. with our heroes today. Yeah. But I also love that there's almost like this shadow hero for all the big heroes. Yeah. So you have Aragorn, but you also have Faramir. You have Frodo, but you also have Sam. Yeah. And I love the way that he puts that together because that's the way the world actually works. Yeah. So in spirit of keeping small books versus your enormous books, you took Lord of the Rings, like the series. I'm taking The Hobbit with me. Okay. And I'm just okay. going to read The Hobbit over and over again because I also like Bilbo. He's a fun guy. I love The Hobbit. Great story. Yeah. I can't read The Hobbit as much as I read Lord of the Rings really? because the narrator is too pedantic. Oh, really? You know, okay. I mean, it's like, it, it just gets annoying after yeah. a while. But, I mean, it's still like my third favorite book of all time, but <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't yeah, read it okay. as much as, as, uh, okay. as, as Lord of the Rings, but I'd like to go back to the island after you've been there now so I can... Read The Hobbit? So yeah, I'm glad that. I could help you out. Um, okay, so, so what do I got? I've got uh, Life Together, and I've got Great Divorce, and I've got Under the Plant, and I've got The Hobbit. You said five? Five. One oh, more. This is difficult. Um, I'm going to need something by Chesterton, and I'm just not going to be able to pick. So give me... If you get all of Tolkien, I get all of Chesterton. As long as it's got the ethics of Elfland. I forget if that's in Orthodoxy or Heresy. I don't know which of his books. But it's uh, the ethics of Elfland is that fantastic chapter about... Uh, how uh, the physicist in me loves that that this fellow Newton said that apples fall out of trees and we we stopped being surprised by that Hmm. but you know when the witch says blow the horn and the wall falls down we think that's that's fantasy land but that apples fall out of trees is just as equally unrealistic I mean why does that happen every time we live in Elfland, and we don't even notice. And and so I love the way uh, Chesterton sees the world. I love the way that you give him any sentence, any proposition. The sky is blue. He will convince you the sky is green, and you are not a Christian unless you believe it. He can take <laughs> any proposition and turn it inside out, and you think, oh, well, of course. Uh, of, of course modernity's bad and of course uh, modernity's good and of course elves are good and of course yeah, whatever yeah, that he had a way because he understood how to use language and he understood Christian principle enough that he could work it into any storyline you want to talk about I, I don't mean to say that like he's wishy-washy like he never meant what he said but he always took the unexpected approach to the topic yeah and you'd say, well, you believe the sky is blue. Well, no. Why would you believe the sky is blue? <laughs> I love Jesus that. is raised from yeah. the dead. The sky can't be blue. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be a good desert island. It would be a good trip. That'd be all right. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.